and welcome to the Notes from Nash podcast. I'm your host, Farouk Ramzan, and today's guest is Professor Dr. Robert Barsky. Professor Barsky is currently a professor of French Literature and Law at Vanderbilt University and the Canadian Bicentennial Visiting Professor at Yale. He is also the Canada Research Chair in Law, Narrative, and Border Crossing. He's an expert on Noam Chomsky, Literary Theory, Refugee Law, and Convention Refugees, or in other words, the Geneva Convention stance on refugees. The books he's written include two biographies on Noam Chomsky titled Noam Chomsky, A Life of Dissent and The Chomsky Effect, A Radical Works Beyond the Ivory Tower. In 2016, Professor Barsky also published a novel titled Hatched. I'm actually currently making my way through this one and it's truly a great read. His newest book is titled Legal Protection, What the Great Books Teach Us About People Fleeing from Persecution which is a nice synthesis of both Professor Barsky's expertise in law and French literature. Professor Barsky was born and raised in Montreal, and he later moved to Switzerland in pursuit of professional skiing. We actually talk a lot about this in our conversation. Uh, Not too long later, he returned to Canada to acquire his PhD in comparative literature. Ladies and gentlemen, today's guest, Professor Dr. Robert Barsky. I think we're just gonna start it off with a very easy question, and uh, I wanted to ask you something just easy, which is, uh, who's the greatest French writer? Oh goodness, you know those questions are never easy. I think it depends on stages of life, right? And what you've read, and who you love, and how you love. For me, I guess it's probably if I had to choose one that I would advocate for at this moment. Uh, it would be François Rabelais uh, for his hilarious, insightful, comedic, carnivalesque work. I just love it all. So maybe, and you know, I also am a huge fan of 19th century novels. So it's, uh, for me, Zola is just an infinite pleasure to return to and to, and to hang out with. And, you, you know, the nice thing about 19th century novels, you got so much of it. It's um, if if you're into it, is you get, you know, hundreds and thousands of novels. That's that's good times. Right. Uh, I mean, I, not that I've read much of French literature, but uh, and I guess where I'd put my favorite so far has been probably. And you can correct me, and you can probably finally tell me how to pronounce his name because I've, I've been struggling. Uh, Stendhal. 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 Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't read Charterhouse Pharma, but The Red and the Black, really just uh, one of those novels that is just, I think, uh, perfection from the first page to the very last. So. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but I also think that Rachel uh, and Colette, both of whom I'm teaching uh, this year, Georges Sand, right. uh, extraordinary. Uh, so, yeah, the plethora of great work out there. It's... Um, and it grows. The more you read, the more you notice connections across them. So it becomes all the more pleasurable to to dive into something new because you both find something new and also find reflections of what you've liked elsewhere. Yeah, it's just an endlessly enjoyable quest. Right. And I was planning on getting to Rabelais at the end, towards the end, especially because uh, 
um, there's a lot to talk about. But I think you mentioned the carnivalesque, and that seems to be a very central tenet of your philosophy or your mode of thinking. Would you mind uh, expanding upon what the carnivalesque is and what it means? So what it is is the adaptation of what used to be the late medieval carnival into artworks. I guess that would be the that would be the really quick and dirty definition. So what does that mean? It means that out of this need that we all have to subvert our ordinary lives and in particular to subvert the authority under which we are governed in our ordinary lives, we find outlets of various sorts. And those outlets, I think, are innumerable. I mean, you know, I think we can think of lots of ways that we, quote, let off steam or party or whatever you would say. What's cool about the carnival is that it was a formalized structure of playful uh, and joyful acting out that would occur once a year in the carnival before Lent. And it involved a series of traditions like masking and pageantry and feasting and swearing. So it had a structure. But on the other hand, it also was a time to subvert everything that you have to normally deal with in your life, which is fun. Uh, and I think it's it's consistent with the pagan ideology that there's a a cyclical nature to our existences. And the carnival, I think, reminds us of that. You know, you might be on top of the world right now, but, you know, the sickness and suffering and pain and loss and death, it's, it, it is our plight, necessarily. And it's easy to forget that. So I think it, it's one of the pleasures of the carnival is the degree to which it's humbling. It, uh, you think you're on top of the world, you think you know it all, you think whatever kind of things one might think. And here comes nature. <laughs> here comes subversion of all sorts. And I, I love that. And I think it's really important politically. I think it's really important socially. I think it's really important personally. And it also reminds us of our bodies. It's all very well and good to have great ideas and to believe in spiritual matters and elucidate metaphysical concepts and so forth. And that's terrific. But at the end of the day, we are bodies. And the carnival reminds us of our of how strange it is to be inside of these bodies of ours, looking the way they do and acting the way they act. So it sounds like from what you said that uh, all of us, to a certain extent, are repressing or holding something within due to the structures that we live in. And um, the carnivalesque is just a time to at least unleash that for uh, momentarily, at least, so for the well-being of our psychological and social health. Yeah, and I think from that perspective, it could be deemed quite negative because one of the ways that it could be construed is to think that one of the passions that we hold back is, say, violence. Right. Um, and I think that in Bartin's description, which is the one that I'm referring to, yeah, I think there's an edgy part to the carnival. When you unleash people's innermost passions, there is, of course, risk of over, quote, overdoing it in whatever way possible. But he doesn't emphasize that part, and neither would I. I think what he emphasizes is creative, creative misreading or creative acting out. Because if you're acting constantly within the confines and structures of an authoritarian establishment, be it what it may, whether it be a company or a 
a society or a church or whatever it is, then you are necessarily not exploring your playful, creative, expansive self. And I, you know, it, it leads us to a super important question concerning human nature, which I know you're interested in. Um, those people who would read into the carnival the, the sense that if you let people loose, they'll start slaughtering each other. Um, that's a very particular take on the nature of human beings. One that I very uh, vociferously reject. Mm -hmm. That yes, there is deviant behavior. There's all there. One can find it in all societies. I think Jane Goodall also indicated we can find it in the animal kingdom. Um, but I don't think that that's that's the, the the nature of human nature. I think in the name of repressing violent tendencies, we have sanctified repression. Period. And that's that to me is is illegitimate and dangerous and and one of the great problems that we one of the great social problems that we face is you know quote cracking down on you know misbehavior of various sorts that that's that's a really that's the road to totalitarian authoritarian repressive structures of all sorts right and that was interesting because we were going to definitely get into human nature and particularly the anarchist view that man is inherently good and that if you do unleash these structures that bound us, that man will do good. And then there's the sort of Conrad uh, and uh, authoritarian view, which is that man inherently is evil and there has to be some sort of social structure in order to contain that evil. Yeah. Of course, when speaking of a... Uh, philosophical or political tendency as vast and complex as anarchy, you'd have to name your sources um, because anarchism, even the variation between Bakunin, Kropotkin, and Chomsky and, and Rudolf Rocker's day, four major figures, is quite substantial. And right. the emphasis from one to the other is quite different. Right. And so you'd, uh, I think you'd have to probably not only talk about the version of anarchism to which you were referring, but also even the era within which that approach was articulated. So if you take, for example, um, Bakunin, his version of anarchism was elaborated in regards to the, his great adversary, which was Karl Marx. So, and it's tinged very strongly, I think, in that time frame, And it's useful to situate it within his time frame. same way that Chomsky's approach to anarchism is situated in America, first of all. It's very important. Right. Uh, and situated in mostly 20th century, not entirely, but largely 20th century. And in response to those challenges that he perceives in contemporary society, starting with the U.S. and then worldwide. So... Yeah, that's that's my caveat there in regards to to anarchism. Uh, fair enough, right? There's much variation between individual thinkers in that broad school of thought. Yeah, but I one more point on the carnivalesque. I find it very interesting that neuroscience has something to say about it, which is that Yakupenko, but he's a famous neuroscientist from Russia, actually, who died not too long ago. His entire research was trying to figure out the circuitry that was responsible for play. And uh, he discovered that rats that uh, did not get rough and tumble play actually maldeveloped in the early age stages of their lives. And that physical rough and tumble play is absolutely necessary, not only for rats, but then 
you can make that connection to human babies as well. Um, babies that did not receive touch, any sort of physical touch in the Soviet bloc nations actually ended up either dying or uh, growing up to develop so social disorders of sorts. So the necessity to ground something in the body and then play with that body is not only very necessary in a philosophical, social, and emotional level, but also in a very physical and neuropsychological level too, which yeah, is what I couldn't anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, where I, 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 I'm not convinced is this idea of being able to trace the circuitry of that. That's, it's, I think this remains mysterious because of the plasticity of the brain. I think we know that from, say, even the study of language, that there is this ideal, this dream of being able to identify these centers. And I think the brain is, has proven to be elusive because it, it seems to, and I'm no expert in this, but I, having studied Chomsky for a long time, I've followed a little bit of this work. Um, it seems to adapt and shift and change, uh, drawing sometimes from some areas and sometimes from others. We worked on a project a number of years ago at the Haskins Laboratory in, uh, in New Haven it was a Teagle-funded project on empathy by the reading of literature. And it was a fascinating idea. The, the idea was that the reason why we like reading novels, and the, the, the example that was used was 18th, long 18th century novels, was because they put you into a situation of trying to see the world through different eyes. And that there was some kind of a pleasure uh, center that was identified when you would do it. So, for and the, the way that the, the experiment was run was you'd we, we would create these vignettes with um, and here's an example. I think that Farouk wants for his roommate to enjoy this interview. So, I'm doing the thinking in regards to you know three levels me, you, and your roommate. And it takes a moment when you hear a sentence like that to, oh, okay, so it's, it's about the roommate. Of course, we can get very complicated. I think that Farouk wants for his roommate's girlfriend to bring her friend whose brother is interested in Chomsky to talk about this matter. Well, that's, wow. You know, so the idea was that we would be exercising some kind of a... I'm going to call it pleasure principle. That's not correct, but I'll, I'll call it that for a moment. There's something pleasurable about that, about doing that. And so we had uh, Yale students read these vignettes while they were hooked up to MRIs. <laughs> so they thought, if you're actually exercising something or other, maybe we could find some trace of this in the brain. And it turned out that you cannot. That it's a fun experiment. I love the idea. It's set, I think it was set up very well and so forth and so on. But it, it just it didn't yield anything because it, you know, it, it may very well be that your conception of empathy or whatever else, it does not reflect in the kind of imaging that you can do with an MRI. It just doesn't work. Uh, so anyhow, that's a modest, modest example. But it was what I like about it is that it, it sets up a relatively simple experiment in which you expect that there'd be something, you know? <laughs> no, nothing, not a thing. Right, yeah. Uh, tracing neuroplasticity to certain behaviors has been a bit of a crisis in neuroscience. <laughs> yeah, uh, <I> guess. <laughs> we do like to construct fictions about it, and like, and sometimes they work, and if they work, why, why does it matter, right? If right. it's 
historically accurate or not, but sometimes it doesn't. And that's, I guess, where the crisis comes in. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, you know, and I think that the, the initial point is, is undoubtedly true and, and maybe obvious that if you deny a cat or a human being uh, appropriate visual and oral stimuli when they're young, when they're babies, for a sustained period of time, that it's going to have an effect uh, that will be longstanding. Right. That's not terribly surprising. Uh, right. I, uh, and I think that we would expect that. In the same way that I know that, you know, I some of my work has been on prisons. I know, I know without even te testing, that sticking people into a room for twenty three hours by themselves right. is an insane idea. It's a way to make people um, suffer inordinately and with lasting consequences. I, I don't. I. I don't even feel the need to prove that. It could be proven. I'm sure it has been proven, but it's so obvious uh, as to defy even my desire to chase down the reason why. Because um, I think the risk is that you say, well, you've got to prove to me that it's not good before we'll stop doing it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, no, we're gonna, that's not going to happen not in my world. Uh Next, uh, I wanted to discuss Chomsky, actually, which is a nice leeway. But why was Chomsky so revolutionary in linguistics? And maybe you can talk about how he contradicted uh, structuralism. I think that what's fascinating about Chomsky is that his own teacher, Zelig Harris, in college, but also his own father, who wrote a seminal book called Hebrew, the Eternal Language. He was interested in establishing the grammar of Hebrew language. Um, Chomsky grew up with those frameworks and came of age, as it were, with those frameworks around him. And as he's repeatedly said, he, he fully expected that they were true that the struct for example a, a structuralist linguistic approach uh a la bloomfield and sapir were correct and that it was just a matter of time before you could solve the the complicated problem of the you know the the enormously complex mathematical structure or structure that underwrites human language and once you figure that out you'll solve that problem and move on and one of my favorite anecdotes from him is that uh, Harris believed that you would solve that problem, that it was solvable, that they were really close, um, that the impending information technology, this is, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s, that was coming, would undoubtedly allow us to unlock the, the key. So he, so he told me, and I had this confirmed actually by, by somebody who was going to do a PhD in linguistics at the time, there was no point in going into linguistics because they were just about to solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> and as it turned out, he tested and did his own studies and analyses and so forth and so on and came to the conclusion that that's false, that the, the, there is a way in which uh, language is structured and so forth, but it doesn't correspond to this um, uh, search from uh, a synchronic monolith that you can find in um, Harris or Bloomfield. That in fact it's a um, it's part of a genetic endowment, and that that and that's what you needed to study. That and therefore the study of language became the study of the brain, 
you're not specifically interested in figuring out you know how you can analyze the english language through a structural assessment that's not the point the point is what is this genetic endowment and what is its initial state and how does it shift in the learning of language and what i love about it and one of the things that i i hold on to in terms of my own teaching is that it comes out of some pretty obvious questions that one might ask if one were to step away from say the theory behind structural linguistics and just observe the world so what would that be so for example you can have two children one of whom is say living on the streets in a very crowded city in other words hearing language all day long it's, you know just submerged as it were in sound the sound of language and you could take another child who say is relegated to a few hours a day with her parents or less and the rest of the time is kept by a you know a, somebody in the house who doesn't even speak the language and therefore doesn't talk to the child and yet so you've got a poverty of stimulus on the one hand uh, overabundance of stimulus on the other and the children are likely to learn to, to actually articulate language at more or less the same time well that's bizarre and fascinating and it's so so and furthermore it tends to happen at a particular moment say between the ages of one and two you know in all humans as far as we know that's an, an observable fact that we know anybody who's had children knows that and that's true of virtually all children or almost all children you know, except for those with extreme uh, deformations, be they what they may. So that's that's one thing. The other thing that we know is that there have been efforts to teach non-natural languages to kids. So the, the, the easy example is Esperanto. So there's a man-made language developed for ease and, you know, regularity and so forth and so on. And or computer language is another example. And it turns out that humans don't learn those languages in the same way that they learn natural languages. Well, that's again fascinating and bizarre. And it suggests that it, it suggests something that I, I find infinitely fascinating, which is that all languages are different. Japanese is very different from English. And yet at their base, they all have to emerge from the same propensity, what Chomsky called universal grammar. So he doesn't study English per se. He studies English as a symptom of universal grammar. So the revolution, part of the revolution is, well, of course, part of it is a challenge to formalism and structuralism as it was at the time. But more interestingly, and more importantly, I think it's a challenge to the idea that you are born with a tabula rasa, and then you learn languages. You don't learn languages in Chomsky's paradigm because you're already equipped to produce natural language. It's, it's in you. And that capacity is awakened in the way that your digestive system is awakened as you introduce food to it, or your sexuality is awakened uh, as you uh, work through uh, adolescence. So th that puts it on a completely different level. And it means that the, the study of language is not mathematical, but biological. 
And the study of language is not the study of language, it's the study of the brain. And that's fascinating. And I guess the third thing that's fascinating in this is the connection to the 18th century. Because I think there was the desire, the belief, the will to imagine that language is a form of coding or mathematization or memorization uh, in the whatever, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, it simplified matters a lot. They got rid of history and biology. But if you go back to what Chomsky calls the Cartesian linguistics, as per his second book, you find that Descartes, Voltaire, Rousseau, and so forth, all more or less believed that you were endowed with the capacity to create human language. It was already there, just as it was already there in the Port Royal movement. So part of it is to uh, you know, create a new paradigm. But the other part of it, which is extremely interesting, is to reawaken a paradigm that's been forgotten or ignored or downplayed or whatever you would say. It's a little bit like, you know, the Renaissance, rediscovering Greek philosophy. So that that's, on the basis of that, you, you think about Chomsky's revolution. But even more importantly, I think on the basis of that, you can imagine how you could think through that paradigm in terms of, say, teaching, which I'm very interested in, or in terms of, say, what you can know or how you know it. Um, and I guess I'll add one more, the fourth thing. Um, there's a huge difference between learning a first language or two languages simultaneously or three languages as a baby and coming to learn French when you're 17. Because the, the rote memorization, the je suis tué, il est du sang, vous êtes sang, and all, you know, the learning to conjugate and learning the parts of speech and so forth and so on, that's a different process from the process of learning your first language. So famously, you know, he'll say, I, I, I don't study second language acquisition. You know, and it's, um, it's another field. And people are shocked by this. They think, well, you're interested in language. What, you, what kind of distinction are you making here? And he's saying, well, it's because I'm, uh, you know, I'm interested in the initial state of the brain and then how that initial state comes to be shifted through the active listening or participation in a natural language or several natural languages and how that develops this rich and complex thing called language. And again, he proves that by saying, you know, one of the ways that you prove it is to say, children produce sentences they've never heard before. That's fascinating. If you're actually memorizing everything, this, that's you would imagine that would be impossible. How do you produce, how are you creative as a baby? That seems inconceivable, but you are. So that's, so I, I, go, on, I go on and on about this because it's an enormously difficult question and an enormous question generally, but I think that the implications of it are so vast. But at the same time, it comes out of something that's also a huge Chomsky insight, which is that we need to pay attention to the really hard questions that we often overlook. Like, how come my baby is speaking language at the same speed as my neighbor when I'm sitting with her reading books to her all day long? You know, it's just, it's a normal thing to wonder. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it, it opens up it opens up a huge amount of philosophical discussion um, that that Chomsky inspired, and you know, 
what he created at MIT with Halle was a department of linguistics and philosophy um, in which they were doing, again, to quote him, they were working on stuff that nobody recognized because it wasn't recognized as linguistics. If you weren't doing structuralist linguistics, you weren't doing linguistics. But he wasn't just doing linguistics. He was, it's also a philosophical approach to, to, the, to, the, to the brain. So, if and you can tell me how right or wrong I am here, but the structuralists, uh, they were, they're running on the assumption that there's a basic mathematical code to all languages and that even though, and now that you have this code, you can actually not only uh, predict how languages will change over time, you can construct new languages and teach them to children. That's interesting. Yeah, I suppose I suppose the latter would be true. I've never heard it articulated that way, but I think the the emphasis on on structuralism is an emphasis on structure. Right. That structure helps create meaning, and that the structure is learned. Um, and again, going back to Bloomfield or Harris, one of the critiques that Chomsky has is that they are presupposing through their overall paradigm that you that you are beginning with a brain that learns everything that there's no onboard equipment to begin with there's no you know chomsky is notoriously nativist in this sense that you are you already have genetic endowments for the most part um, and you know there are exceptions to all this and, and there is a degree to which chomsky's approach has structuralist elements to it but the in principle there is a denial amongst you know bf skinner or or uh, bloomfield or harris of the um, the overwhelming importance of your biologically derived genetic endowments that chomsky totally really that you know a lot of it is placed there right that that was very comprehensive so thank you for that that really did clear up a lot but uh you obviously know Noam Chomsky personally, and I actually have a photo of you and Chomsky on my notes over here, if you can there see you. that. <laughs> uh, how did you meet Chomsky? So the very first letter I sent to him, as I recall, I have hundreds of letters from him, but I think um, I gave a talk in, uh, Urbino, Italy in 1989 um, on Michal Bakhtin, the work of Michal Bakhtin, the language philosopher and philosopher of ordinary life, and met at that conference um, Michael Holquist, who was the, you know, he had been in Slavic studies and comparative literature at Yale for a long time, and was the summum of Bakhtin studies in America. Uh, and a translator of him. And we agreed to do an issue of a journal that I had started called Social Discourse. We agreed to do that journal together and we published it in 1990 as Bakhtin and Otherness uh, with a whole series of very, very interesting, I mean, even today, very, very interesting articles. And I sent it to Noam. Um, as I recall, that was the first letter. There may have been some earlier that were more about politics. I, I, I'm not really sure, but I, I certainly remember this letter. And he wrote to me, a number of things struck me. One of them was that he replied immediately after getting it. He undoubtedly replied the day he got it. And he said, thank you so much. 
for this journal issue of Martin, about whom I clearly uh, know far too little. And that was so, it's like writing to Einstein and sending him a paper about physics and him saying, wow, I never, you know, this is like a whole new dimension for me. There is a humbleness and a kindness and a generosity to this person who didn't know me from Adam uh, writing back to a student in Quebec uh, in this way instantly that was so inspiring and, and shocking. And on that basis, I began a series of long series of conversations with him about all sorts of stuff. I, I had, was beginning to understand and get to know uh, the history of anti-Bolshevik Marxism and Marxism and socialism and, and anarchy. So I would send him letters about that stuff. And I knew some people in Montreal who were uh, in that world. So I would interview them and send them the interviews uh, on the one hand. And I was doing refugee studies on the other. So I was very involved in working through the challenges of, of you know, being with some of the most vulnerable populations in the world and looking for somebody who made some kind of sense uh, in that world. And I think I, I think I quite early on recognized that the whole refugee adjudication system, the asylum adjudication system, is rooted in language and the interpretation of language. I mean, how could I tell if you're telling me a lie or how can I tell if you are who we say you are and so forth and so on. And there's all sorts of highfalutin language theories that will pretend to solve some of those problems. And I, on the basis of thousands of interviews that I listened to, came to believe that that was nonsense, that there were so many factors involved that made no sense. So I, I guess I was being introduced into human rights, into international refugee law, into communication studies and so forth and so on, in ways that created new forms of discussion between me and Noam. So, and then there was just this weird way in which I felt very, I don't know, it was beyond admiration. I felt a, a degree of, of friendship and love for Noam from the early days. And I loved reading his stuff. I just couldn't believe it. So I also sent him all sorts of personal letters, uh, as one does, you know, when you're going through graduate school and loves and losses and all sorts of other things. I would write to him all the time. <laughs> and I got into trouble uh, due to social justice work that I was doing in regards to refugees. And I was threatened to be thrown into jail for a long time. So of course, who do I write to? I write to Noam. And who writes back right away? Noam. So yeah, so we had many, many points of discussion. And then in a, in an important moment happened when I used to go to my kid's daycare at McGill during the day. So I would I was studying at McGill doing my PhD. So was the mother of my child, eventually children. And they were happy to entertain the parents during lunch hour so that you can hang out with your kid uh, and feed him her. So I did. I would do that every day. And there is this uh, linguist who would lie around on the floor with me with her kid. Her name was Lisa Travis. And her, I guess by then, ex-boyfriend or something or other named Jay Perini um, had been interested in Chomsky. And she had trained at MIT. So uh, we had lots to talk about. And 
at one, po one point, I don't know how long this took, but after a while, she said to me, Jay has been asked to write Noam Chomsky's biography. And he said no, because he doesn't understand the language side of it well enough. That was my conception of what, he, what she had said. And she said, you clearly are engaged with him on multiple levels. Would that be of interest to you? So because of rolling around on the daycare floor uh, uh, with my kid, um, I was you know, invited to write this thing that became the, the, the biography. So you know, it's, it's the haphazards and the fun coincidences of life. Are you still close with them today? We had a conversation last week, oh, um, as we do all the time. I, I, I don't think that in the 35 years or so that we've been pen pals, as it were, um, that I've gone more than three weeks without a letter to or from him. And we've seen each other on a number of occasions. I've hosted him uh, on a number of occasions and, and done stuff with, uh, and, you know, with him. So, yeah, he's been... He, he was another education. I, I had a BA, MA, PhD, and a postdoc, and then I had Chomsky, uh, who was, you know, I've read every word the guy's written, almost, um, which is monstrous corpus. And he has all along the way suggested things that I should read. And I think I can say, honestly, that I've never not done what he suggested. If he said, Jay said I should look this up, I looked it up. If he suggested that there was something missing, then I'd figure out what that was. And that includes him saying to me one of the most memorable things that he ever said to me, I mean, in terms of humor, at least to me, is he said, you shouldn't be writing about me, you should be writing about my teacher, he's more interested. That uh, somebody like Chomsky would say that there's somebody out there who's more interesting than him, I think is hilarious. Um, but it also is the case that Zelig Harris, interesting as he was, to me, at least, didn't hold a candle to know him, but I nevertheless wrote a biography of his teacher, um, which is undoubtedly the hardest task I've ever done because he was working in a paradigm that simply did not accord with my natural view of the world. But I did it. I did it because, you know, I've, I've benefited from every darn thing that Chomsky's ever suggested to me. Now, it's, we all can't have Noam Chomsky as our mentor, but it sounds like a mentor to you was a very important uh, aspect of your life and your, uh, not only your intellectual, but also social and emotional growth. What, how do you, uh, how would you say to the folks out there, how can you identify a mentor and how would you go about, I guess, creating that relationship with that person that you think would be a good mentor for you? Maybe yeah. in the short term, medium term, or even the long term, like in your case. Yeah. I, I think about this all the time. And I, I think about it partly because both of my kids are academics. Uh, my, my eldest child is a psychologist. My youngest wants to be a law professor and is a lawyer. So my own background, I, I use a term from literature, my own background has been messy. Hmm. Um, nothing was done in a straight line. Very little was done with any kind of a serious plan. My real plan was to be a professional skier. That was my, that was the plan. That was something I really worked on. The, the rest of it, 
I gravitated towards certain people who I enjoyed being with. And I loved them. I, I loved them. I, I, I've already said that I felt a, that I feel a huge amount of love for Noam. That's true. Uh, I was criticized for the biography because they called it a hagiography. And I took that actually as a compliment. Yeah, it is. It's, an, it's written by an admirer. Whatever. Pretend I'm not an admirer. I am. You know, I really am. But my academic career has been massively marked by friendships. And those friendships, for some reason, have often skipped a generation. Um, so I have this massive canon of people, I mean, ridiculous, who have served as what you're describing as mentors, but who I would also describe as friends. And I didn't seek them out thinking, oh, this person's at Yale and is a fancy whatever, and therefore I'm going to get to know them and whatever. It just wasn't like that, never. But um, I'm attracted to a certain type of person, clearly. And um, in maybe one of the great gifts that I've been given, a number of you know these people have shared that friendship. So how do you do that? Um, I can honestly say that I did it very authentically. I would, I would go after stuff that I was interested in. I would, and then you naturally gravitate towards some people and not towards others. And I made friends that way. And some of those friends were Marc Angenot and Michael Holquist and Noam Chomsky and uh, you know, Jim Silk and Debbie Anker and, you know, absolute summums in the field the multiple fields in which they work. But I loved them. I loved them from the beginning and I hung out with them and we did stuff together. And most of the most of these relationships, I say we go back to the carnival. Carn my carnival relationship is with Michael Holquist at Yale. We started by sharing a bottle, maybe two, of wine in northeastern Italy. And and that was it. Like that by the end of that night we were friends and we did a hell of a lot of drinking during his his lifetime that was always unbelievably amazing not that i'm recommending this as a method you know you might want to throw footballs or or you know uh, take walks i have no idea you know these are different times as my sons remind me constantly you know i, I think that there is an informality to my relationships with my mentors that was very very important um, and that meant dinners at their homes and hanging out with them and, and so forth and so on in ways that are more challenging, I think, today um, because of well, all sorts of reasons, some of them positive and some of them negative, about relationships with authority. So I, I don't know that I can recommend my own path. In the same way that I told you, I got into refugee law because I got into trouble like big trouble. It could have been huge trouble. It could have been prison time for a long time. But, you know, a lot of people in the radical past have been arrested for civil, you know, what you'd call civil disobedience, like Chomsky was, or Jean Genet was, or, uh, and, and you do it because you believe in the cause and you put your own body on the line. 
Well, that's all well and good at that time. It's not well and good now. Now you get arrested and you're screwed forever. So you also have to, you have to choose your methods relative to what's going on now. So I, I still believe in mentors, but there's a formalized system for it now that maybe is better that I advocate for a lot, which is something like internships. You know, it's a, it's a great idea. It puts you under the wing of or inside of the institution of or whatever else uh, leaders in the field and you work and you participate and you actively engage. It may not be about late night suppers, but it may very well be about rubbing shoulders with and getting to know well people who you admire. So I am a huge believer in, for example, the Maymester I teach, where we are, you know, we, we, we meet the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights because that's the formal thing that I've set up. And then we take them for lunch because that's the informal thing that I set up. And then some of the students say, oh my God, I would do anything to work with you. And he says, oh, we'll talk to her. She fills out some of it and let's, you know, let's make it happen. And they make it happen or WHO or MSF or any of the other organizations. So, yeah, so I, I, I absolutely believe in internships. I actually, I absolutely believe in authentic relationships. To hang out with somebody because you think they're going to get you something, it's never been my thing. Like, I, I, I know it works for some people. It's, it's not my thing. Without authenticity, it, it doesn't work. I, I'm, I'm not interested in it. But if you authentically think that somebody's interesting um, and you make yourself, uh, you know, intern, get involved with, follow whatever else, that, that person, I think there's a lot of richness. And, and frankly, that's why I enjoy Vanderbilt. Um, when I was an undergrad in Boston, I fell on my proverbial knees before this poet uh, named Alan Grossman. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about when I first met him, but it sounded so profound and so important that I just dedicated those four years pretty much to being around him and listening to him. I did every single thing I could do to listen to that guy. So I go to his office hours, I go to his classes, and, and it was true for a number, number of other Susan Staves, uh, my 18th century professor. Uh, and then later on in my life, Denise Ali, an anthropologist who I worked for for years, you just get the impression that you just want, you just love being with this person. Um, so how you make that happen, that I think you have to be culturally sensitive to, to that. But a place like Vanderbilt, you've got things like office hours. You've got, you know, you can work for a professor. You can uh, participate in conversations. You can show up at conferences. All of those things, I think, are incredibly rich uh, in potential. To follow your natural inclinations. That's yeah, sad. absolutely. Um, not only sounds like good advice to find a good mentor, but also just to find good people. Yeah, including a good partner and a good friend and a good basketball player to play with. And, you know, right. whatever. Yeah use the same formula to uh, to run your life, you're likely to be a hell of a lot happier <laughs> than if you do what you think you're supposed to do all the time, which is, you know, um, exhausting to me. And it, it, it doesn't, I don't think it can yield the results that you want. I, I just, I don't believe it. Um, it might yield something, but it's you know, right. 
small by tray. No, and it's interesting because there is a tradition, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, so I'll be brief, but there is a tradition of, uh, I guess, nowadays of self-help books about structures of how to approach people. It, it all stems from Dale Carnegie, which there's nothing against his book. I actually love it, but I think people take it too far that there's certain things you have to do consciously. You have to approach a conversation in a structured mindset, but really it just comes off as being disingenuous. And I think totally. people, just want, people just want you, really. I'll I'll tell you a quick anecdote. In some ways, it's the type of story one should not tell, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's called reality. Uh, I was giving a conference once once, uh, in uh, Mississippi, and it was on the river. So it was in a hotel that was floating. Uh, (laughs) you, You wouldn't even have known it was floating, but it was floating. It was in the water. And as on, a, on that account, they could gamble legally. As I recall, that was part of the equation. So right. yeah, we're in this stupid thing. And it was one of these conferences where people are being pretentious and unbearable, and it was hot. And everybody's kind of sitting there, and they're all suffering, but they're listening, and they're, but not really listening. You know, one of these guys. And I was losing my mind. The, the, the whole circumstance was, was just not, to me, not a way in which you learn anything. You just sit there and suffer through it. So I turned to the guy beside me and I said, I'm going to the bar, do you want a drink? Now, I had never seen this guy in my life. And he says to me, if only you knew how much. So I said, fine. So I got up, I bought two, two glasses of wine. Didn't ask him what he wanted. I just bought him, bought him a glass of wine, came back, gave it to him. And he said, hey, you know, my name's Michael. And I said, I'm Bob. And we kind of hung out and shot the shit a little bit. He turned out to be the president of Fulbright. And we have now had a friendship for, I guess it's 20 years. And I took a Canada research chair for a year in Ottawa. He was my neighbor. I saw him almost every day. Uh, We've become just the most massive kinds of friends. And I sure as shit didn't seek him out because he was you know, the, the, the president of Canada, U.S. Fulbright, he was just a guy sitting there who looked as miserable as me. Now, <laughs> so I don't know what the hell Carnegie would say about that, and I don't even care. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was one of these moments that's quite entertaining, actually. He could have been a psychopath, obviously. You know, could have been, um, but that's not, that's not what happened. Right. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> I want to talk about pedagogy for a bit because it seems like you are interested in ways of teaching in the classroom and uh, you once actually mentioned in the classroom that there's two types of teachers there's the one teacher that tells you how to act how to talk what to think and then there's another teacher that's supposed to facilitate the inherent genius or the inherent intellect of an individual the classroom is a sort of garden in order to facilitate that uh for my observation it's quite obvious that you're of the latter and why did you choose that type of teaching, the type of teaching in which you're trying to facilitate um, the inherent genius in a, in, a, in a student? Yeah, I think that, you know, the classroom is either the worst place in the world or the best. It is either a totalitarian-inspired, authoritarian structure in which you learn to obey orders and do well because you obey orders. You know, you show up on time, you dress properly, you are deferential towards the professor, you engage the way you're supposed to, you spew back whatever the professor says, and you get a good grade. I have zero interest in that. Um, I, I, that's not true. 
I have an interest in that when it comes to motorcycle maintenance. <laughs> like, if you're learning how to fix my motorcycle, I want you to fix my motorcycle. And I want you to know the manual well. And I want you to put the, the brake where the brake belongs and so forth and so on. So that there is a place for that type of learning. There's no question about it in, in, in a technical school. Because right. <clears throat> you need to do things by, quote, by the book in that case, because you're dealing with something that's assembled in that way. So that's fine. But that's not stuff I teach. Uh, what I'm teaching is historical, philosophical, literary, legal, and so forth and so on, in which I'm not interested in what I think. Um, I'm putting out ideas based on my own background, my own assumptions, my own experiences, the people I've known, the work that I've done, so as to not set either a standard or a mode of doing something, but giving an example of a way of being in regard, say, to a text or a problem. The problems that you're facing as a student now, at your age and your place from where you come from and so forth and so on are necessarily different from my own. And therefore, I think it is my job to inspire questions. I think questions are helpful. It's, it's worth hearing some interesting questions. Uh, and, you know, one of the great pleasures of life is figuring out the right questions to focus on. That's helpful. It's helpful to see the array of ways in which those questions have been addressed. Not answered, but addressed. Usually, I don't deal with questions that can be answered generally. It's too vast. And then to try to, to use Chomsky's term in terms of language, to present a rich and diverse environment in which ideas awaken and grow. That's very different from presenting the material so that you memorize it and spew it back to me. And that's, that is, the latter, I think, is, 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 is horrifying in regards to the kind of stuff that I, that I teach. And the former is delightful and exciting because students are constantly surprising me by what they have discovered or what they discover, what they found out that they know that they didn't know. And it's also exciting, I think, as a student to say, wow, I never knew about that, and I love it. It's like my thing. I just love it. You know, I, the, the study of human nature, or the study of the carnival, or whatever else, like, I never knew it was out there. And so I, I guess the other purpose of a class is to give license. You know, you, you and I talked about this in class, the, the study of laughter. Who the hell studies laughter? You know, but... It's an it's absolutely fundamental part of human existence is laughter. And yet it's not a serious topic of conversation, apparently. Um, but as soon as you say it, as, you, as soon as you say to a group of people, you can actually think about laughter as a subject. And you can think about what it means to laugh with somebody, at somebody, beside somebody, in a group, by yourself, when you're terrified, when you're excited, when you're happy. And everybody's instantly interested by this question. And it's a hell of a lot more interesting than asking if the stock market's going to go up or, or whatever kind of crap, or if there's an economic model that works, which is you know, mostly a big pile of nonsense. And I think part of, part of what has made Chomsky so fun for me, or Bakhtin, or Holquist, or Angenot, is that you're allowed to explore interesting, interesting questions. <laughs> you're, given, you're given permission right. to explore things that are interesting. That's 
So that's pretty cool because a lot of the shit that's out there is, you know, it's it's a way to form people to obey authority. We become really one of the things that we're really good at is buying shit. So the amount you know you and you can test this yourself. You you look online for an elastic band, and there are twenty seven thousand comments about the elastic band on Amazon. And then you are looking around for a good book of Rabelais, and they've sold seventeen copies, and nobody said anything. Well, that says something about the culture, you know. We all have some stupid thing to say about the elastic band. We have nothing to say about the other stuff because we don't concentrate on it. Well, is something really wrong with that? And yeah, so those are some random thoughts. No, it's it's an interesting experience because I've I've had teachers in the past who are one hundred percent the authoritarian route. I mean, I'm talking like if you write with the wrong color ink, you yeah. get points off. Um, and I, I've learned to think that both styles of teaching do something for me, at least. I've learned that an authoritarian teacher helps when it comes to, like you said, like the maintenance of a motorcycle, when I'm trying to learn mathematics or economics or things that are very structured and don't have much much space for me to spill, uh, fill in with my own thoughts, then the authoritarian teacher can be warranted. But when you're dealing with something much more complex, multifaceted, and oftentimes contradictory, there's no way you can impose an authoritarian style of teaching, which is why I think it's, it, it is the right thing to do to, to facilitate that sort of garden mentality. That's just what I, what yeah. I have from my observations. I wonder at the same time if it doesn't apply even to, say, the study of mathematics. I, I have a friend who's a, math, a mathematics professor right. who told me that everything one does all the way up to the PhD in mathematics is more or less useless that it 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 begins after that point when you begin to explore so that suggests that there's a body of knowledge you need to know but it also suggests that there's a creative element to it from the get-go and that sure rote learning or you know punishment and reward and all other stuff could be applied and yeah, you can learn from those experiences, but you can also learn from the experience of being thrown into prison for 10 years. You can learn something from it. It doesn't, I think, necessarily make it right. Um, so yeah, I agree with you. As I've said, there are certain things you need to memorize. Um, there's no question about it. It's, you, from French verb conjugations to mathematical formulas, if you don't know them, you're not gonna get anywhere. Right. But I don't know that that necessarily implies the need for an authoritarian classroom. So let, let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Um, I have this thing about romance languages. I, I love them. Uh, I love all of them. Um, I've thought in the past that I should learn Spanish because living in the US, one should know Spanish, obviously. But I have this insane fetishism for Italy. It's like a, it's like a malady that I have. I just love. It'll, everything I'm wearing right now, for example. Right now. Um, it, it's, it's this thing. I, I, I love it. And therefore, I gravitate towards it. And therefore, I, I enjoy studying it. Um, and when I started deciding that I should learn Spanish, I felt as though I should do it. I really should learn Spanish. So, you know, take classes and memorize whatever else. And I wasn't getting very far, partly because um, memorization, that kind of stuff, later on when it comes to language learning is quite difficult there's so much to know um but also because italian tends to get in the way of spanish 
you know, if, if you are st studying it, I think the hardest thing in the world would be to study French, Italian, and Spanish at the same time, because <laughs> you would constantly make mistakes. They're so close, you know, right. so close and, and yet substantially different. So I had this revelation once. Um, I went over to somebody's house. Um, they were, it was entirely Hispanic family. And I landed up with the child. I love children, and I landed up hanging out, talking to the kid. And the kid only spoke Spanish. That was very helpful. So whereas I had been terrified about speaking, because I didn't want to make a mistake, all of a sudden, I don't give a shit. The kid's five. <laughs> all he did was point and laugh at me and, and giggled and looked at me like I was an idiot. And that was really fun. Like, it was extraordinary. And I made more progress in speaking Spanish in the hour and a half I spent talking to that kid than I had in you know six months of studying Spanish in a classroom. Because I, I let go and I remembered things that I knew and he would imitate me and say, and make me repeat and all this other stuff. It was enormously helpful. So it was just my attitude actually that made me learn better. So to go back to rote learning, I think there's probably, I mean, I, 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 I'm not good enough in mathematics to say anything very helpful about this, but I do remember there being moments when I was studying calculus where I'm like, wow, these formulas are actually quite cool. Like, it's cool what you could do with a sines and cosines and whatever kind of stuff I barely remember. And there's probably a way to present it that's really quite cool and that helps you remember it and helps you enjoy it. So maybe I don't need to be beaten within an inch of my life to, to remember the damn thing. Maybe there's a way to create an environment in which I find it interesting enough to arrive at PV equals NRT in a way that I find fun and useful and valuable. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I guess play does facilitate learning better. And there's been research on that for sure. But uh, I've, never, I've never really thought about it that way. And I guess... Probably one of the reasons why I have stayed away from being intensely involved in STEM is actually because of the teaching style that is uh, infused in those classrooms. But that is a new way of thinking about it. <laughs> uh, my next question is actually about skiing. Uh, after graduating from Brandeis University, you moved to Switzerland to pursue skiing professionally. Why skiing and what was so meaningful about skiing? So I started skiing really young, like probably three and did so because that was a way for my parents who worked all the time to be rid of the children on weekends uh and i think a lot of kids would say the same thing about dance or baseball right. or whatever that it was a way to occupy the kids and in quebec winter is so long and we're completely in montreal surrounded by ski hills and at that time something that i terribly regret uh today at that time, you could get a ski pass for an entire year for hundred, you know, probably one hundred and fifty dollars for the whole family. So it was a real family thing to do. If you want to get rid of the kids, or you want to be with the kids, you just go skiing. And I took to it. And I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved the nature. I loved the, the danger. I loved the speed. I loved the the culture of it. I loved snow. I just loved everything about it, and just kept doing it my whole life obsessively and. We kind of, it's all we really talked about through high school was skiing. It's all we cared about. Summer was there to train you for skiing. <laughs> uh, you'd swim in order to ski better. You'd play baseball in order to have better hand-eye coordination for skiing. Like we kind of, we, my friends and I were like that. 
and I was on a few teams. The most marked for me was an exhibition mogul team that was sponsored by a radio station called CHOM. And this radio station required that those people who were on its team, which were called powder hounds, we would ski for free anywhere we went. And all we had to do was give a snow report. So it was an amazing thing to do. And we'd also do exhibition stuff. So you, they would organize these, these quite friendly competitions between the local ski hill and the Shom skiers, and we would compete. And you know, you when you're doing that and and you're pretty good at it, and you know, you just start thinking, well, what's your lifelong dream? I graduated from college. What was my lifelong dream? I moved to Switzerland with no plan, except I was going to compete wherever possible to try and make a living doing that. Um, that was my plan. That's hence the desire to be a professional skier. the The reality was, and this is true in most sports, unless you're in the top, you know probably 100, maybe 50, maybe even less. There's no way in hell you're ever going to make it. Uh, and something like ski instructing in a place like Switzerland, if you're not from there, was extremely challenging. So I, I rapidly realized that this was a, a really, really, really fun pipe dream. And, but at the same time, I was in Switzerland. So we engaged in something else, which at that time was, we, I now know, was kind of developed, which is called extreme skiing. We just we were good, but not good enough to to compete at any high level. So we would jump off really big cliffs and, and ski down really steep territory and go to really, you know, dangerous places and ski. It was really dangerous. Um, but that's what we did. They they made a film about this uh, called Steep. Um, and, and it was it was filmed, as I recall, the year that we were there. And they, they were claiming that this really was the kind of beginning of so-called extreme skiing. So, yeah, so it's been part of my identity for a very long time. And I still, when I'm, when I'm happy, when things are going well, I dream about skiing. Like, I'm, I'm going down a ski hill when I'm really happy. So it's, it's, it's written inside of me. And I, I guess there are elements of mogul skiing that... Um, or freestyle skiing or skiing in the woods that have inspired my thinking generally because you're you're free, you're unharnessed, you're unleashed, you're creative, you're not following any kind, I mean, you're going down, but other than that, you do pretty much anything you want to. So it's a, it, it's a, it's a way to think about life. Right. <laughs> and, and would it be fair to say that you're one of the founding fathers of extreme skiing? I, I I would love to say that it's, it's undoubtedly not true, but if I could get a title, you know, you know, everybody wants to win something. Being part of the founding family of extreme skiing, uh, that I would take absolutely. It's it's like I say, it's undoubtedly not true, but wow, that that that's an honor. I would I would take that. Let me tell you that right now. Uh, I wanted to talk about passion and reason for a bit here. Uh, you've edited and translated the book Philosophy and the Passions by Michael Meyer. Uh, what do you think is the relationship between passion and reason? Is there a dichotomy? Is that a false dichotomy? Is one more powerful than the other, et cetera? Yeah, like so much of what we've talked about together today is somewhere hinged on the relationship between passion and reason. 
beginning with the fact that those are two identifiable characteristics of human nature that we pursue both. Uh, and there's a long history. The fun thing about that book is that he traces the history of thinking about passion since Aristotle. And what's, what's fascinating is that you can do philosophical studies for the rest of your life focusing on that question. What does every single philosopher who's ever lived say about passion? And what does every single philosopher who's ever lived say about reason? And that would, it's a question you could never, you could, first of all, you could never answer. There's be so much. And second of all, it's a question that never get boring. It's, a, it's fascinating. And so what you learn, I think, in that is that the Greeks, for example, took passion more or less for granted. Uh, and, uh, but at the same time, it's a foundational civilization for our conception of knowledge and so forth. So it, it therefore appeals to conceptions of reason. Um, and they didn't necessarily treat them as, as adversaries. Uh, and you didn't, for example, get punished for passion in the Greek realm the way you landed up getting punished later on in the Christian realm. So as you study the treatment of passion through the centuries, what strikes you, I think, is that the Judeo-Christian world, um, and I, I, I presume elements of the Islamic world also, come down quite hard on that element of our existence that we put under the rubric of passion. And one of the goals that you have um, is to drive out those tendencies connected to passion so as you act in a more reasonable fashion. Um, it's funny, I was, I was raised, my father's Jewish, my mother's not. Uh, and you know, I think today is Yom Kippur. It was, it, it's an interesting day to be talking about this. You know, you're trying to, you know, uh, fast and, and recognize your sins and so forth. It's it's a it's a thing. Uh, but what's fun about that book is it, it says, well, what is what is passion actually, and what is reason, and are they like you said, very intuitively you said, is there a connection between the two beyond them being opposites? And there is an obvious connection between the two, which is if you're driven to the quest for reason, the, the verb driven there um, is probably connected to passion. So your passion can drive you to wonder um, in a reasoned way about the world. So that was suggested if you crush your passions, that you're probably crushing something that will help you in your quest be it what it may and that and as it turns out you know if you look at contemporary society uh, to, to be very negative contemporary american society one of the things you learn is that if you're rich and well connected you follow your passions with more or less impunity uh, we may have had a president who acted a bit like that once upon a time uh that's horrendous um because Everybody else is denied, you know, uh, access to the decision making that would improve their health and their lives, and they're not. They get punished severely for small errors that they might commit, so forth and so on. And somehow, it's not a level playing field. 
um, in regards to and and a lot of really nefarious political discussion and and policy making comes out of the belief that passions are bad. So being you know, gregarious, funny, staying up all night, you know, and so forth. So particularly if you happen to 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 be an undocumented migrant, you're you're thrown into jail or prison. Um, so presumably, one of the things you got to figure out how to do is to drive your passions out of your body. You know, don't don't act don't act quote impulsively or don't act on the basis of your passions. Well, I mean, and one again, it gets back to an earlier question you posed. Passion is also linked to violence. You're, when you're you're when you're passionate, you're violent. Well, that's, that's I think quite a sickening uh, idea. It, largely untrue, or probably almost always untrue, or mostly untrue. Um, and it leads to this mechanization of human behavior that is decidedly uncreative, uh, and I find phenomenally depressing. <laughs> uh, so. How do you, so I guess more interesting question would be, how do you harness your passions towards something that would be enlightening, powerful, that moves us in the direction of social justice, that helps liberate us from our chains rather than create them? And th they, th this is a question that, you know, the romantics, the romantic poets posed, I think, very, very clearly. It's a question that's posed in literature all the time. It's a question that's asked in you know psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, and elsewhere. It's a it's a fantastically interesting um, realm, and it it goes back to your question of human nature. We seem to be driven, and again, we get back to Chomsky here. We have an intuitive, intrinsic propensity for common sense. Uh, that's. I mean, it, it, it's a thing that exists. We can see it. Rationality is part of our, it seems to be part of our genetic makeup that we act more or less, we seek to act more or less in our own best interest often. Um, and, and sometimes that can be positive, sometimes that can be negative. And then we have this, this passion, which you know is either the id, which is this like weird, wild, uncontrolled, bizarre, incomprehensible, uh, canonic and eruption inside of us that you got to sit on or it's you know loving kite flying and therefore building good kites uh, no that's interesting like the carnival uh, you need it is a place of structure but it's a place of structure in which you can lose or shed yourself of structure it's almost totally. paradoxical totally. similarly you, you mentioned that pat the passion <laughs> problem is passion reason problem is is that to learn to identify that raw passion, the structure and a fashion that uh, cultivates meaning in our lives. Totally. And, you know, you used the, the right term, I think. A lot of the most interesting conversations are paradoxical. I, I think that one of the things that Chomsky talks about is, uh, rightfully so, that all people are absolutely identical. Right. Uh, absolutely identical. In, and, and that's kind of the, the basis for human rights law is that everybody's absolutely identical. That, and therefore, irregardless of color of skin, country of origin, social class, whatever else, we all uh, deserve, merit, or should be born with fundamental human rights because we're all the same. 
and and discrimination from that perspective makes zero sense because you're a human being and therefore you have human rights. He also says that absolutely everybody is different. That's also that turns out to also be true. You have different abilities, different propensities, different loves, different capacities, and you have to find. So I think if you were doing political work, you've got to figure out how to balance those two things. How do you promote a social justice compendium in which everybody enjoys jouir, as they say in French, from the same rights on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, how do you create a society that does not impose itself in arbitrary ways so, such as it crushes uh, creativity and passion? Uh, that's the challenge. And, and by the way, that society has to respect everybody, which means that if your thing is to, you know, make an enormous amount of noise at night, and that's like you think of that as a fundamental human right. Well, it's not because you're keeping somebody else from sleeping. So you know, that's the limits of your of your freedom if you're impeding the freedom of somebody else, and that's that is paradoxical. You're absolutely the same. You're absolutely different you're uh, you know you're you're absolutely passionate you're absolutely reasonable these are and i think that one of the great things about literature is it allows you to balance incompatible ideas um at the same time you don't have to drive one out in favor of the other it's nonsense i mean you end up with dickens hard times or something utilitarianism it's terrifying um yeah very well. And then I think that very easily segues us into talking about truth. Uh, uh, Carl Jung, the Austrian psychoanalyst, he used to like to reference a dictum of the alchemists, which was in truth and filth that will be found uh, in strictly as invented terms. It is, that's, I think that's how you say in Latin. Sorry, what did you say? What was it in English? Uh, in, in filth, it will be found. In filth? Right. Okay. So it very much reminds me of Rabelais, actually, and maybe you can outline the idea of truth being found in filth, as is embodied in Rabelais' writings. There's a there's a nice book about this called uh, Dirt for Art's Sake, uh, which studies the history of obscenity and obscenity trials in literature. Um, filth implies a bunch of things that are interesting and important. One of them is that they, it often gets premised on the idea of dirt, uh, dirt or filth. And it's used in the world in which I spend a lot of my time working in refugee law uh, as a way to repress and uh, incarcerate and deport and make suffer people who are not, quote, from here. Uh, there's an anthropologist who said that uh, dirt is, quote, matter out of place. So everybody wants to have dirt in their garden, but when the dirt gets in their house, then it's filth, then it's a filthy house. And that idea, that way of thinking comes to be applied to human beings. So how does a, a presidential candidate and then a president get away with saying things like all Latin Americans are rapists or, or you know, whatever kinds of unbelievably hideous, sickening, disgusting, outrageous, stupid things that, that came out of that person and his administration's mouth. It's, it, it's through this tie uh, between that which is deemed to be outside and that which is deemed to be inside. 
so the again, how could you possibly advocate for a wall? The dumbest shit in the whole world. It's, you know, we're apparently a global culture, and we apparently engage in free trade, and we're apparently capitalist, and we're apparently interested in free markets and all the rest of that shit. And then, on the other hand, you're advocating for walls. It's, you know, these these apparent and insane contradictions are, are you know, nevertheless managed to to pass muster, and it's 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 very hard to understand how, unless you're able to demonize that which is deemed to be filth uh, in such a way that what comes to be, you know, you can shoot people at the border and it's justifiable because you're keeping the filth out, you know, these images that people have. So that's reprehensible and it's part of the, uh, the idea of filth. It can come to be connected to, for example, obscenity. Uh, obscenity trials, famous obscenity trials against D.H. Lawrence or James Joyce or uh, Marquis de Sade or Allen Ginsberg or Henry Miller or, you know, the list is long, um, are kind of premised on the same thing, which is it's perfectly fine to go to the bathroom or to make love or whatever. But when it's represented in literature, that somehow it's matter out of place. And it should be condemned as such, and the book should be burned for that reason. Mm. Um, so you've got the same kind of, of assumption here, that somehow you're going to get corrupted by the representation of you know, that part of one's life. It connects to Rabelais. Rabelais is talking about pee and poo and you know, barfing and all the rest of it all the time. It's a celebration of what it means to be human. Uh, eating too much, drinking too much, loving too much, and so forth and so on. It's it's a representation of it and a celebration of it that is not anything other than just our own humanity. It's, it's who we are. It's, who we, it's, it's what we are. Um, but you like to pretend, you know, I mean, uh, as, as I still say, I'm going, I'm going to the washroom. You know, it's, it's one of the things you do there, but it's not all of them. Um, <laughs> You know, you've got this this protective shell, like a border, um, against reality. Um, so what's interesting in the carnival is that the carnival would bring you down to earth. So we went from filth to dirt to earth. Uh, you, you get back into the soil and you come down to earth. You come down. You're no longer highfalutin. You don't have one of these fancy titles. You're not metaphysical primarily. You're a body that does all sorts of funny bodily things, including be born and die. So the 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 idea of, of dirt and filth and knowledge being in filth is something that's explored a lot in, for example, literature. You take, for example, uh, one of the one memorable images, Charles Baudelaire, uh, as a poet who drops his crown, his poetic crown, because we admire poets, into the mud, um, and then picks it up, puts it back on. Uh, this idea of the mud being actually closer to poetic truth than supernatural, you know, arcane, archaic knowledge is, I think, very important, um, and it's. And it's part of literat literatures from Rabelais through 
uh, Cervantes to uh, Jean Genet and Artaud right up to, you know, and so, you know, there's a, there's a long line of it you can find in literature. It's a place where dirt thrives. <laughs> um, and when you find a culture that is burning books uh, or censoring ideas and so forth, you've, you're you in a very dangerous culture. It's it, very likely a very dangerous culture and one to be very scared of. Um, even if you don't agree with what's being said, as, as Voltaire insists, um, to defend people's right to say it so that you can talk about it is crucial. So that's interesting because what you mentioned before, uh, viewing the outsider as dirt, uh, it's been highly, highly, I mean, that that is one of the most highly studied topics in evolutionary psychology, and that's the emotion of disgust, which is a very, very powerful emotion. And there is research showing that people with higher disgust propensity, they get easily disgusted by things, more disgust per disgusting thing, also tend to have more authoritarian tendencies. Wow. Okay. That, again, doesn't surprise me. It's, it's uh, and you know, it comes all the way down to people not wanting to ride the subway. Right. Or right. people not wanting to have public transportation at all. Because mm -hmm. you don't want to, quote, rub shoulders with the filth. Right. Uh, I, I feel exactly the, the, I mean, it's such a reprehensible way to live your life, mm. um, to think like that. And then, you know, this idea of matter out of place is crucial also because, you know, like I said, dirt's fine in the garden. So, you know, Latin Americans are fine to be working in, in Mar-a-Lago. There's no problem with that, even undocumented ones. But they're, they're in the backgrounds of working. So that's their, they know their place, quote, right? Right. In the way the dirt knows its place when it's in the garden, but when it comes, when that dirt comes out of the garden and demands rights, well, that's you know that's a step too far. Uh, so we don't mind having those uh, people in our society building our homes and cleaning our bathrooms and taking care of our kids and so forth and so on, but that ends when they start asking for rights. And that's that's the end of that. And that's uh, what could be more sickening. Than, than that reality. And it, it conforms perfectly to the dirt out of place. You know, you say, well, you know, I, it's funny. In, in my ordinary life as a, in a bourgeois part of the city, I never see black people. And they're like, oh, well, they're over there. Right. Or I only see, you know, Latin Americans when they're serving. Well, they're over there. Like, they've got their place. And it's despicable. Everything, everything in the world is about that is despicable. Uh, and it, uh, yeah. So I think you can begin with the image of, dirt in the garden and, right. and go go a long way actually with understanding acute social issues that we have in this country and look at the investment you know the investment is with giving more billions to shell to drill more oil or whatever the hell it is as opposed to giving billions to help people get from place to place without sitting in their stupid car or you know, feed their family with proper food rather than garbage, uh, or breathe clean air. How how can you possibly live in a society where that's not advocated for? Well, you know, we we do. And perhaps the only way for a lot of us to overcome our irrational disgust for the outsider is just to expose ourselves to the people that the disgust is no longer there. And I, I think the idea or the image of the crown in the in the in the mud is almost like the juxtaposition of the sacred and the profane. I don't know if yeah. there's something here 
that has some sort of correlation between viewing the outsider and then normalizing them and humanizing them rather than seeing them as a as a uh, as a pathogen that needs to be taken out. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I guess this is my last question, so we can close out here. Um, what is the meaning of life, according to your estimation? <laughs> you know, you 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 think differently about this every second of the day. Just about you know, right. if if we were truly, um, let's say, rational and pagan, the way I think we should, most likely we should be then it's you know you're going to dissolve into something that's going to nourish a tree uh, that's and that's how i want to be buried i want to be buried under uh, a, a young tree so that when my body decomposes i can be turned into something useful <laughs> so that, that that's the meaning of life you know it's cyclical it's you you know you when you when you throw leaves on the ground, they're good for the grass. When you throw plastic on the ground, you destroy the planet. Uh, so the meaning of life is is that it's it, it's you contribute to this to what is cyclical. On the other side of it, you know, when you have dear friends, as I've advocated for, and loves and passions and children and friends and lovers, you you hold on to life for dear life. <laughs> And you know, you get back to skiing. We only had one way of skiing, which was so catastrophically dangerous that a quarter of the people that I skied with either died or had or were severely injured. Because you had this idea that there are two, you know, that there are two paths. Either you have the greatest day in the entire world, or you die. <laughs> Everything else is no fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, all these things are are say something about our lives if you are so cautious so that you never get sick and you never do anything you never risk your life you never you do nothing right. but if you act the way we acted in switzerland you would as we know from famous climbers and so forth and so on eventually die young like it was it was written in this in the in the star so you know we could answer it a thousand ways meaning of life is to pursue passion but that's undoubtedly a bad idea you do it nothing but that yeah. Uh, it's not. It doesn't matter at all. You're just another, you know, pile of decomposing flesh that'll feed something. That's another. Uh, or it's the most precious thing in the whole world because you love your friends so much you don't want to leave them, <laughs> or they don't, and you don't want them to leave you. Um, yeah, and it also, of course, is stages of life. You know, it's uh, it's very different being in your shoes in that regard than in mine. Um, because we're at different stages in our in our lives, but you know, you've always got a good reason to say, "I want to, I want to hang on." I want to see my, you know, grandchildren, or whatever. You, you want to graduate, you know, whatever. It's very different stages of life. So it's the balance. And again, I get back to literature. Literature is really good at holding one thing in its opposite. You are a thing that creates fecal matter and urine and ingests food, and that's what you are. Or <laughs> You're this powerful, metaphysical, intelligent, fascinating, passionate creator of universal truths. And both of those are true um, and totally incompatible in some ways. Well, thank you, Professor Barsky. That was a very enlightening conversation. I had a lot good. of fun. Uh, good. I'm glad. Thank you for having me.
Right. And I'm excited to be back in the classroom next week. Yeah, tomorrow. Oh, that's right. That tomorrow. <laughs> so disoriented. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, thanks for having me and take good Thank care. You. And I admire all that you're doing. Thank you very much. Okay.